Amen. Please open with me in God's Word to Genesis chapter 23. We are continuing our look at Father Abraham in this series through these chapters of the books of Genesis. While you're turning there, ask yourselves, what is the last time you have been to a funeral? Now, over my time as a pastor, I've officiated over a few funerals. Some of you may have been there yourselves as I have proclaimed the Word of God as an encouragement to those who have gathered, but for anyone who has been to a funeral, you recognize that it is a time of seriousness, when the people gathered together are somber, as we grieve the death of someone we love and remember the time that God had given them in this world. So tears are shed, encouragements are offered, and family and friends are comforted over their loss. But at funerals, we are all confronted with the reality of death. And if the casket may be open before us, we're even able to see and to say goodbye to the one whom we've loved. A strong and sad reminder of the death that we all face. Well, what is your hope? as you face death? What is your hope as you face death? Because God wants you to have hope. And this morning, we learn more about this hope from what we could consider the first funeral in the Bible, in the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So let us read together then Genesis Chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. 
Now Ephraim dwelt among the sons of Heth. And Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, four hundred shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within, the possession, or within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. Let us go again before our Lord in prayer. Father, this morning we are once more confronted with the reality of death. And not only with the reality of the death, but with the coming of our deaths. May we then hear from your word the hope you give to us in this world as we face death. And Father, may this hope then empower us to live our lives each and every day that you give us for your glory because of the love we have received in Jesus Christ in the confidence that your Spirit provides. And so, Father, we pray that you will mightily and powerfully speak through your word. That your preached word this morning, Father, will become your voice to your people for our encouragement and for the salvation of all who are here who do not have this hope. in the midst of their death. So we pray you'll be with all of us, Father. You'll be work in our minds, in our hearts, in our very souls. That Christ will be glorified this morning and our hope will be found in Him. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ Himself. Amen. Amen. So where will we find our hope? 
Well, our answer is revealed through this story or through this chapter in three scenes. Three scenes. The first scene is a disheartening death. The second scene is a purchased property. And the third scene is a temporary tomb. So a disheartening death, a purchased property, and a temporary tomb. Let's begin then with this first scene in verses 1 and 2, a disheartening death. See, because humanity was living in rebellion against God through our sinfulness, and we are under His judgment. We have God who calls out this man, Abraham, from the nations so that the nations will be blessed through Him. Because God promises us salvation from His judgment out of love for us, which is why He then enters into a covenant with Abraham. And it's through this covenant with Abraham that He promises to bless him with descendants who will become a special nation. And they will be given a promised land to inherit as their own. Abraham then believes in God. He trusts in God's promises to him. And his faith is strengthened and continues to be strengthened through the years as he and his wife have been dwelling in this promised land of Canaan. Well, in the last chapter, you may remember his faith was put to the test. When God asks Abraham to sacrifice his own son, his only son, his chosen son, Isaac, as, as a sacrifice, a burnt offering. Will God or so will Abraham trust God through this test? Even if it means the death of his son? What about God's promise of descendants who are supposed to come through Isaac? we find Abraham indeed willing to trust God, even if it means sacrificing his son. And this confirms his faith as he entrusts his very future to God's care. Which is why then God provides a lamb as a substitutionary sacrifice to offer instead of his son Isaac. And now that Abraham's faith has been proven, God swears an oath upon himself, guaranteeing that his covenant promises will be fulfilled. Which then brings us to this chapter. When we return to Abraham's wife, Sarah. And as God had asked Abraham to give up his son, now he must give up his wife of all these years. She too has been a woman of faith and has loved and served her husband as they followed God together here in this land. But 62 years after God had made his covenant promises to Abraham, we come to the end of Sarah's life. When she is 127 years old. 
See, as Genesis progresses, we notice that lives continue to get shorter and shorter and shorter under the curse of death. All you have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 11, where before God first called Abraham and Sarah to see how long people lived and yet how much shorter the lives were becoming. Begin with Shem, who lived 500 years. And then come down all the way to Terah, who was Abraham's father, and he lived 205 years. But now we have Sarah, who lives 127 years. And this time, which would be about 20 years after Abraham's test on Mount Moriah, when their son Isaac is now 37 years old, that Sarah dies. And Sarah here dies in Kirjath Arba, or Hebron, which is in the southern region there of the land of Canaan. Now, of course, this march of death has continued through the chapters of Genesis ever since the fall of mankind into sin. But Sarah here is special. And she is the only woman in all of Scripture to have her lifespan recorded for us. As I said, this is the first time that we have a kind of funeral among all the dead that have taken place so far. In scripture, we then see her importance because Sarah is the mother of Abraham's descendants. She is the mother of God's chosen nation of Israel. She is the one through whom God promises to keep his covenant through their son, Isaac. Well, it's no surprise what happens to Abraham after he's lost his wife of so many years? He mourns. He weeps. I know my heart would break if I lost my dear wife. I could only imagine how much more difficult it would be to lose her after so many years as Abraham had been with Sarah. He was overwhelmed with the death of Sarah. Probably tore his clothes and put dust on his head as would have been normal in this day of mourning. But you see, through Sarah, we are once again confronted with the tragic reality of death in this world. Because death entered this world through sin, which is why each of us has a limited number of days in this world. But death is a foreign intrusion into this world. Because it's the curse we all face for our sinfulness against God. Death, then, is our enemy that brings us into the judgment of God. 
So listen, we too will one day die. And for those of you who may think your death is years away, even if you live as long of a life as Sarah, your death is coming. Your day of death will come. So are you ready? As Hebrews 9.27 reminds us, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Are you ready? Because as long as you remain in your sin, there is no hope in death. There is no hope in death. But God's judgment of condemnation awaits you for your sin. Abraham and Sarah believed that God would provide them from salvation from God's judgment. And they trusted in God's promises. And listen to me, this is where true hope is found. By believing in God and trusting in His promises of salvation so that death does not have the last word. Which is why then, brothers and sisters, we move from the first scene of a disheartening death to the second scene of a purchased property here in verses 3 to 16. Now, Abraham has a problem, doesn't he? He has no place to bury his wife. While they have been dwelling here in the land, it is not their home. So they are pilgrims, not citizens of the land of Canaan. And this could then lead to a crisis of faith for Abraham. While God has promised him this land, after all of these years, he possesses none of this land. And when his wife dies, he doesn't even have a place to bury her. But Abraham's faith in God remains strong. And so he determines he will purchase a place in this land for himself. So Abraham rises and he goes to the gate of the city. This is where the official business of the city would take place, where legal issues were handled. This is where you would find the government leaders, the businessmen, the lawyers gathered together. So Abraham comes and he speaks to the men at the city gate here. And these men are called the sons of Heth. Now this refers back to the table of nations in Genesis 10, where we see where the nations of the world come from, they become known here then in Genesis as the Hittites. But Abraham speaks to them and admits he has no rights there in the land because he's a foreigner and a visitor among them. Yet he still asks to buy some property there to bury his wife. Well, they knew Abraham and they respected Abraham. So they responded to his request by recognizing 
how greatly God had blessed him. They call him here a mighty prince. Literally, a prince of God. It's the title as if royalty is there among them. So they offer to do him a favor. They're willing to help Abraham by allowing him to use any one of the choicest and best of their burial places to use in their land. But, this property would not belong to Abraham. And Abraham knows that Sarah would then be buried among the Canaanites in one of their own tombs. Abraham wants his own property as a possession there in the land. Knowing this land will eventually be his and his descendants. And so he continues to speak with them. But first, Abraham honors them by bowing down before them, not in worship, but to show his gratitude. You see, while they have lifted him up as a mighty prince, so he humbles himself before them. To show his dependence on their kindness. There is a specific place that he has his eye on in the land. There is a certain place he would like to own there as a permanent burial site for his descendants. It is the cave of Machpelah. And so he asks to speak then with the owner of the land, Ephron, the son of Zoar. Now, why this cave? Why this place? Well, if you've been paying attention here through Genesis, it was here in the place of Hebron, in Mamre, that God had originally made his covenant with Abraham. So now he wants to be buried here with his wife and family. Even in death, trusting upon God's covenant promises made there in the land. Which is why he is willing to pay full price to make sure that this cave will become his own graveyard. But he only asks for the, for the cave. He, he will allow Ephraim to continue owning and using the fields around the cave as his own. He, he wants the cave. How then does Ephraim respond? He says to Abraham, not only will I give you the cave, but I'll give you the field around the cave. And take it. It's yours. Bury your dead. He says it over and over again. Bury your dead. Now, obviously, this is a generous offer. But his politeness here is likely a courteous language that's often used to show he's interested in selling this larger property at a higher price. It's how in the 
oriental cultures of the day, the ancient world in which they were living, you would often enter into bartering to try to come to an agreement. This kindness then is a way through which negotiations would begin. But Abraham is thankful. He can have more than the cave. He can have the field around the cave. He'll gladly pay for both, but he wants to make sure that the land is his. And so he insists in front of all the men who are gathered that he will fully pay for the property to be his own. Well, again, Ephraim responds, it's worth 400 shekels of silver, but take it. It's unnecessary. You're my friend. Again, this back and forth. This politeness. But really, this seems to be a clever way here to hide Ephraim's greed. Because 400 shekels of silver would have been more than 100 pounds of silver. Far greater than a typical price for a small plot of land there. If you want to make a comparison, King David, later in the Old Testament, bought the land to build the temple from Uruna there in Jerusalem for 50 shekels of silver. Which means then that Ephraim asked Abraham for eight times the amount of money that David pays for the land to build the temple on. So Ephraim here probably is inflating this cost to enrich himself. But rather than haggle with Ephron and threaten his ownership of the property, Abraham simply weighs out the money in front of the men to complete this legal transaction. You see, God has so richly blessed him, whether it was 40 shekels of silver or 400 shekels of silver. He's gladly willing to pay to own that land as a burial place. So the details of the transaction are then clearly laid out and it's seen by all to show that this land is rightly his and no one can question or contest it. Do you see then how after all these years, Abraham now finally owns a small piece of the promised land, which gives him a foothold in the land of Canaan through which his descendants will come to inherit all the land according to God's promise. See, as God gave Abraham a son through whom his promise of descendants will be kept, so now God provides Abraham a field through which God's promise of land will be fulfilled. Abraham, while not seeing in his own lifetime these promises of descendants and and land fulfilled in their fullness is yet out of God's grace and mercy given a small taste to prove the greater promises are coming 
this will be his homeland even in death. Before we continue, let's stop to ask ourselves, what is your homeland? Where is your home? Because we are constantly tempted to see this world as our home. Yet this world is filled with death, with wickedness, with corruption. Listen, God offers us an infinitely better and greater home. A glorious home in His presence. Which was Abraham's hope. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 verses 8 to 10. Here we return to this great chapter of Scripture to remind ourselves of Abraham's faith while living there in the promised land. So let's read once again Hebrews 11, verses 8 and 10. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10 for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now let's skip down to verse 13 and 14. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. May we then look forward to this home through our faith in God's promises, living in this world as strangers and pilgrims as we seek the greater homeland to come. Because, brothers and sisters, it's the homeland God provides for us. It's there that we find our hope. But still, our hope is yet not complete. We still have one more scene to consider this morning. We began with a disheartening death and then continued the second scene to a purchased property. This brings us to the third and final scene here in this chapter, a temporary tomb. Verses 17 to 20. See, Abraham now owns this field of Ephron in Machpelah with the cave in it. Which is why verses 17 and 18 read like they are finalizing a contract. Here it is specified the location of the land, the seller of the land, what is included on the property in the land, the boundaries of the land, the buyer of the land, the witnesses to this purchase of the land, and the place where this deed is then transferred to Abraham. See, there is great pain here in, in, in spending the time and using the ink to show that this property is deeded to Abraham. 
as a permanent possession with witnesses. It's made official there then at the gate of this city. This land is now His. And now that Abraham does possess this land, he buries his wife there, knowing this land will one day belong to his descendants. And this is what we go on to see as Genesis continues. When Abraham dies and is buried in this land, and then his son Isaac with his wife Rebekah are buried here in this land. And then Jacob and Leah, his grandson and wife, are buried in this land. And even Jacob's son Joseph, while he is in Egypt, requests that his bones be taken and buried in the same land. This land was a place of faith in something greater. You see, Abraham and Sarah's pilgrim journey in this world comes to an end. But through Sarah's burial, we see Abraham's steadfast hope of eternal life and of the resurrection to come. He was a man who believed that God could raise the dead first by sacrificing his son Isaac or his willingness to sacrifice his son, knowing God will raise the dead to keep his promises. And now he recognizes this too, this place where he is now burying Sarah will one day be empty. Because the body that he buries will be raised up with resurrection glory. They have been pilgrims without a permanent place in this land, but now he has one here in this land, a promise to hold on to even in death. He then secures this permanent place because of his hope in the world to come. He knows this isn't the end of Sarah's body, but she will be raised again with resurrection life. See, this is why Abraham buries Sarah's body and doesn't burn it up. After all, it would have cost him far less to burn her body. But this was a pagan practice for those who saw no future for the body. Our bodies are a gift from God. And our hope is found in our bodies rising from the grave. Which is why Christians through the centuries have not cremated our bodies but bury our bodies, expecting them to one day rise. Brothers and sisters, as cremation grows in popularity, we need to consider what we're saying about our hope. 
with the bodies that die in Christ. And we need in the midst of this to recognize these bodies will indeed be resurrected when Christ returns. Now, for those who have known loved ones who have been cremated, of course, this will not stop them in Christ from being raised from the dead, but what a better testimony we have by having the body of those we love buried, expecting them to one day rise with life in Christ. We then have the hope of a homeland with resurrected bodies to enjoy forever. This is our hope. This is our future hope. What a great future we have to look forward to in Christ. Let's turn to one more passage of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18 where the Apostle Paul writes of our hope in the resurrection of, from the dead through the return of Christ. So 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18, Paul writes here to the church, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. We need this hope. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are, who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Do you want comfort in your life as you face the tragic reality of death? Do you want hope in the midst of the coming of death? Look to Christ and to what we will receive through Christ when he returns. You know, our children, when they're in Sunday school, are learning the New City Catechism. And in the very first question that they have learned, which comes out of the Heidelberg Catechism as well, listen, listen to the question and answer. May this be true for all of us. The question is, what is our only hope in life and death? How would you answer that question? What is your only hope in life and death? Well, here's the answer. That we are not our own, but belong 
body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is our comfort in life and death, both body and soul. So what is this hope? What is our hope as we face death? Listen, as Abraham was a mighty prince of God who purchased land as a possession for his descendants, so Jesus Christ is the greater prince of peace who purchases our heavenly home to enjoy in his presence. But this promised land costs far more than 400 shekels of silver. It costs the blood of Christ as He hung on the cross under the very judgment of God we deserve to pay for our sins in our place. It is through Christ who endured the very wrath of God for us that we are saved from His judgment and that we have the hope of a heavenly homeland to enjoy in resurrection glory forever. If you do not know this hope, Oh, listen, do not leave here without looking to Christ and believing in Christ as your Savior by trusting in His death on the cross for you as a sinner. Turn away from your sins in repentance and turn to Christ by faith. May your hope be found in Christ. Because He is our only hope. Our only true and certain and lasting hope in this world. And when Christ is our hope, when we have faith in Christ and Christ alone, then we too are like Abraham, living as foreigners and visitors in this world as we wait to enter our heavenly home with resurrected bodies. This, then, is the hope through which we can live in this world. I like how Sidney Gradanus has summarized these truths he says, how do we know that God can be trusted to fulfill his promise? God has also given the New Testament church a down payment, a token that he has begun to fulfill his promise. As God gave Israel through Abraham the first fruits of a grave site in the promised land, so God has given the New Testament church through Christ the first fruits of an empty tomb. God's down payment of this promised new creation is Jesus' resurrection. 
So just as sure as Abraham owned land as a testimony that his descendants would then inherit the promised land through Sarah's tomb, so we too look to a tomb. But it's an empty tomb. Knowing for certain that the fullness of God's promises are coming when Jesus returns and heaven and earth reunite into one. And brothers and sisters, how we need this hope today. Because in 2020, it seems like our hope is far too often focused on this world. Whether our hope is found in finding a vaccination to end this pandemic, whether our hope is found in looking to the government to solve the injustices and social problems of the world, whether our hope is found in voting for the right man to win the White House. Now listen, these things have their place, and we can pray for God to bless them, but America is not the promised land, and our hope is not found through our efforts to make this world a better place. Because nothing we do can change the sinful human heart. And nothing we can do will stop the coming of death. These then become false hopes, which will only lead to frustration and misery. Because we cannot bring about the change that we also yearn for. But the good news is Christ can and he will. So our hope is found in him and in the future he will bring. Not in this world which is destined for a day of judgment. See, while we will follow the cultural customs of our society and seek to do good while, all, while we are here, our hope is in the world to come, not in this corrupt world of sin and death. why we join together then with the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3, verse 13. And we declare, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is our hope. That we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is our hope. There is our future in Christ. May we then live looking forward to that day, to our coming eternity, of our homeland in God's presence with resurrection glory. Let's turn to one last passage of Scripture. I know many of us know it well, but 
turning at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. It's always good to be reminded and refreshed by these words. Revelation chapter 21. May this be the future of everyone here this morning. Revelation 21 verses 1 and 5. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. Listen, God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. This, then, is our hope. No more death, but life, eternal life. In the new heavens and the new earth is our homeland, where we will dwell with God forever. May this future, then, Give us the certainty and the confidence to face our own deaths and to live our own lives in this world filled with sin and corruption and wickedness and injustice and sorrow and crying and pain. Because these days are temporary. The days to come are forever. Let us pray. Oh, Father, what a glorious future we have to look forward to in Christ. As far as we have taken our eyes off of the future and focused them on the present, as far as this glorious hope has been replaced in our mind with the vain hopes of this world. Father, we bring them before you in repentance. And ask for your forgiveness through the blood of Christ with every assurance. Not only will we be forgiven and cleansed. But that we will. Experience. This coming day of glory. May we then live our lives because of this coming 
day in this future hope. So Father, we ask all these things in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.